the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And welcome to another edition of Lifeline. We are here. In case you were wondering where we were, (laughs) we are here and glad we're not in Washington, D.C., Thank you, at least for the brawl going on earlier today. And, uh, you know, normally it's Saturday night at the fights where I like to have popcorn when I go to a boxing match, but uh, no such luck today. Wow, what a mess. We're going to talk about it. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by New York Times bestselling author Dinesh D'Souza, who incidentally is going to be here in town in October. We'll find out more about that when Dinesh joins us later on in this hour. Right now, though, speaking of Washington, D.C., earlier today, mustering all the sincerity that she possibly could, was Dianne Feinstein speaking to the, uh, the mess occurring in the so-called hearing. We're going to get comment from Brad Dacus. He is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute and counselor. Always great to have you with us. Just before we get to your comments on uh, today's event in Washington, D.C., uh, a thought, if you would. Uh, I'm sure by now a lot of folks have learned that Assembly Bill 2943 has been withdrawn by Assembly Member Evan Lowe. Certainly good news. Oh, it's, it's great news, uh, Craig. We're uh, very pleased at Pacific Justice Institute. We put a lot of time and effort. I personally waited on this in person at the state capitol. And, uh, and, but what's really exciting is just the, the teamwork so many t- uh, pastors and and people and concerned citizens contacted their uh, state assemblymen and their state senators, and, and it really had a, an impact. Uh, we uh, we also are are have our eyes wide open to the future in terms of what's likely to come, and that is uh, Assemblyman Lowe made it very clear that um, you know he's listening, he's hearing the concerns of the religious community, and he's going to take that in consideration and come back with something else. So we know there's going to be something else. We just want to make sure that no one's First Amendment rights to free speech and free exercise of religion is infringed upon, uh, that everyone's rights are respected. And I think it's real important that that be the, the standard for everyone, uh, that we don't have an attitude saying, well, my group is now protected, so this other group um, is, you know, I don't care about. We have to stay united for civil liberties. And, and certainly staying on top of this, too, to recognize uh, any time in politics, as in this case here, uh, that the assembly member has agreed to set it temporarily aside. There's a big difference between that and saying, OK, I'm going to leave well enough alone. So we'll right. certainly need to stay on top of this, to be sure. Now, let's move to Washington, D.C., shall we? And uh, earlier today, California Senator Dianne Feinstein mustering every sense of respectability that she possibly could to try and bring some sense of uh, semblance of organization back to what turned out to be a pretty raucous start to the Kavanaugh-SCOTUS confirmation hearings. Behind the noise 
is really a very sincere belief that it is so important to keep in this country a court that really serves the people. And I think that there's probably a a great deal of agreement to that, although at the end of the day, the court can serve the people by serving the Constitution first and foremost, and the court that serves the Constitution serves the people best. You can quote that, by the way, if, you, <laughs> if you'd like. Uh, I don't know in all of my years of covering the United States Supreme Court, and uh, like yourself, Counselor, I go back to remembering some of the raucous um, events that took place in hearings related to Justice uh, Clarence Thomas and, and even Robert Bork, but I don't know that I've seen a more disorganized, uncivilized beginning uh, to a hearing as I saw this morning. Yeah, it was it was outrageous, and you know when you when you saw how systematic the uh, they were in terms of putting it up in the balcony, people attending, and systematically they would start chanting. Once someone from the right of the aisle, Republican, would start you know talking questions, they would start into chanting. Those people would be arrested eventually, finally, then they'd be taken out. Then then the next Republican, then they would start chanting. It was continual, continual disruption. On against people who are Republican, and then the Democrats, of course, there was no one screaming and yelling at them uh, from the, the balconies. And instead, they were doing their own screaming, uh, the senators, and, and really totally unprofessional. Uh, you know, t- I don't think they really, it's, it just shows to where we've gone as a society. Uh, instead of the Senate conducting itself in a very civilized, uh, respectful manner, uh, it was uh, very, had a lot of vitriol, it was, it was very inappropriate. And, um, and I, I just, you know, to think that someone with the track record and, and distinguishment of Brett Kavanaugh to have to uh, to endure this as a part of the process is uh, really um, unfortunate and a, and a terrible statement of, 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 of the kind of people um, that we have in uh, in Washington, D.C., and in the Senate. Well, and, and not only unfortunate that um, Brett Kavanaugh would have to endure this, but that members of his own family he had to endure this yes. as well. Give, give, give a listen to what went on if it makes any sense. That I have been patient and listened to people not be recognized and speak anyway because I would like to have this be a peaceful session. Yeah, and of course, um, uh, committee chair. Republican uh, Chuck Grassley having a difficult time doing just that. And and this person yelling from the gallery, this is a mockery and travesty of justice. A confirmation hearing? I mean, really? I mean, this has got to be the the ultimate in, 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 uh, I was going to say civil discourse, in uncivil discourse that I've ever seen. Yes. It's, it's, It's extremely uncivil. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. Kamala Harris should be ashamed of herself. Uh, very, uh, the way she behaved and the, the other senators, uh, very uh, shameful for, for not only themselves, but also the states that they're representing. I, I think that the people of those states should be outraged as well. Um, you know, I remember the days when, yep, uh, you know, we saw Bork and, and Thomas, and that was, that was very inappropriate at times, uh, what was conveyed in the, in the personal information, personal attacks. Uh, but this takes it to a whole other level, Craig, and I'm really concerned. Um, you know, you know that that we have 
uh, something so serious and important as the appointment to some of the Supreme Court, and instead of being civil and intelligent and respectful of the process, uh, we have a demeaning of the process uh, completely. We have that. We have a demeaning of our system of government and of the United States. Uh, that's what we see, and I think that's should be any it, both the left and the right should be very concerned about the the direction of of, of our system of government and and how the Senate conducts itself on such matters. Well, and particularly when you have both sides demanding that we respect the rule of law, that there be orderly discourse, and at the end of the day, an opportunity to have an up or down vote, either yay or nay, that is typically the way these proceedings are carried out. And to find out that this poor man sat there, I think the the hearing began at 9.30, and it was well past 11 o'clock before he could even attempt to give his opening statement because of all of the, the noise and arguing going on and screaming and yelling. In the end, more than 70 people were arrested. Uh, Many of those, in fact, 61, removed from inside the committee room itself at the Hart Senate building, uh, and the balance uh, charged with obstruction of justice taken from the Dirksen Senate office building. Uh, I mean, it just this is absolutely unheard of. I mean, if you have a right. problem with the candidate, then fine. Communicate to your member of the United States Senate. You have a problem with the candidate, and let there be a vote. But to scream and right. yell and, and the audacity of that woman that you heard just a moment ago off mic saying that this was a mockery and travesty of justice. What? Right. And I will say it's, it's, it's one thing to have, um, you know, uh, questions and, and with critical thinking and close examination from the left and the right that's fine and that's good and that should be there but to have a process where it is a a political grandstanding combined with civil disruption and disobedience uh... in an orchestrated way that they were it was very very obviously orchestrated um, that is very concerning and uh... hopefully they'll be able to maintain order in our our united states of america's senate chambers uh, tomorrow. Well, uh, we'll continue to follow this story, and we'd hope that tomorrow there will be some sense of civility uh, return to these proceedings. And again, I want to echo what Brad Dacus just said, and that is, you know, to have disagreements in terms of uh, who was selected, why they're selected, wh- whether or not they are are confirmed or not. That, that That's fine, well and good. There's always going to be differences of opinion between sides, but at least we engage in discourse and then come to some kind of a conclusion. Even if it becomes majority rule, we come to some kind of civil conclusion, and then the losers accept the decision. And that's historically the way democracy has functioned, certainly historically the way this democracy has functioned for its first 240-something years, uh, although that seems to be changing quite rapidly. Our thanks to constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dagas, for joining us with that update. Now, um, speaking of just a loss of complete civil discourse, as we've seen today, uh, is this a part of a bigger, grander, more severe problem. My next guest, I think, will suggest that is exactly the case. He is New York Times best-selling author, feature film producer, and now um, the producer of a brand-new film out called Death of a Nation. We talk with Dinesh D'Souza as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, we talk with Michael Bennett. Got a look at traffic for you here on the Tuesday post-Labor Day edition of Lifeline. What's going on out there, Michael? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we mentioned just a few moments ago, the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings got off to a real wild start in the Senate today. Democrats demanding more access to documents and records on Kavanaugh's background and wanting the confirmation hearings delayed. Meanwhile, 70 people arrested for demonstrations, um, 61 of them removed from inside the actual committee room at the Hart Senate building, and another nine others removed from the Dirksen Senate office building. And I don't know that I've ever seen such a solemn proceeding as the confirmation hearing of an appointment to the highest court in the land get off to such an embarrassingly raucous start. Is this perhaps symptomatic of a grander problem that is boiling not too far below the surface in our country today? I think my next guest would suggest, oh, yes, indeed, it is. We are joined now by best-selling author and film producer, Got a number of big names to his credit, including 2016, Obama's America, and America, Imagine a World Without Her. His latest film is called Death of a Nation, building on the success of one of his other uh, recent books dealing with this very same topic. We're joined now by one of America's most influential conservative thinkers, New York Times bestselling author, Dinesh D'Souza. And Dinesh, as always, great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you. It's great to be on the show. Wow. Watching the opening committee hearing today uh, almost seemed like an endorsement, uh, sadly, for your new film. Well, it was uh, I mean, certainly a menagerie, and uh, it also shows you that there has been, uh, between the two parties, uh, something that, that actually I don't think we've seen in this country really since 1860, and that is a secession of the American mind. It's almost as if listening to Republicans talk and Democrats talk, you'd think that they were talking about two different people. Uh, and this is not just Kavanaugh, this is true on so many issues. And so clearly there has been a kind of breakdown in the way that we understand each other. Now, we didn't have this in the Reagan era, which is when I became a young conservative. Uh, there were disagreements. The disagreements were within a framework of commonality. We at least understood the language the other person was using. Uh, but now that this seems to be less and less the case. And it's, it's partly about Trump, but it's about a lot more than Trump. Well, and certainly the language alone, uh, you know, filled with hyperbole and accusations. I mean, I don't know that there's been any recent time in uh, certainly uh, my memory when accusations of fascism and Nazism and socialism and racism uh, have flown about as much as they have today. And I have to wonder if any of that belongs in a free democracy. Well, the... Um it's true that the point of these accusations, I mean, why would, you, why would you call somebody a white supremacist or a fascist or a racist if you were not trying to say, listen, you are a bad guy. I don't need to debate you about the Constitution or judicial review uh, or uh, public policy. I'm simply going to demonize you, and, 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 I, and, and that justifies me then using riots, using violence, uh, using intolerance, uh, trying to get you fired from your job, trying to make you a digital non-person, trying to, if you're President Trump, eject you from office before you've had a chance to serve your term. Uh, all of this uh, incivility and really barbarism has now become a depressing feature. 
future of American politics. You know, it's interesting, uh, after watching some of the, the opening circus today, uh, later on in the afternoon, I went online to see how some of the conservative press and liberal press were reporting on uh, day number one of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And I was shocked to read a story in townhall.com that reported on Zena Gelman-Bash, a name that will mean nothing to most people, but Zena Gelman-Bash is of Jewish and Mexican descent. She is actually the assistant to Brent Kavanaugh. She happened to be seated behind him, uh, behind the interview table uh, during the proceedings today, and uh, several of those on the far left were accusing her of flashing the, quote, white power sign, and then went on to articulate that if this was not enough reason to uh, to deny Brett Kavanaugh a confirmation hearing, they didn't know what was. And, and I thought to myself, yes, we've now reached the point where um, women of Jewish, Mexican descent, American uh, Americans are flashing white power signs. And uh, <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, can, can we get any more debased than this? It's crazy. You know, The um, in the in my latest book called Death of a Nation, I look at the leading white supremacists in the country, about a half dozen of them. Now, interestingly, contrary to what the media has been telling us unceasingly for a year, uh, these guys all have a deep history in the left. Uh, and I don't just mean uh, Richard Spencer, the poster boy of white supremacy, or Jason Kessler, the guy who organized the two Charlottesville uh, white uh, supremacist rallies. Andrew Anglin, who's the editor, the co-editor of the Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi website, and on and on it goes. All these guys are anchored in the left. Uh, in the movie, of course, I interview Spencer. It's a very eye-opening moment in the film when it becomes really obvious that this guy who's been portrayed as a right-winger uh, turns out to be a left-winger. And um, so there's a lot of media distortion going on, not just fake news, but I would say fake scholarship and fake history. It's a time when you have to be really vigilant to be alive today, because if you can't decode the news, and if you can't see behind these fake narratives, it's very easy to be taken in. Well, and it's also an easy way in which sometimes uh, the left will whitewash things uh, using very inflammatory terminology that, quite frankly, they demonstrate neither they nor their readers or followers really understand. For example, I've never heard the term fascism or fascist tossed around as much as it is today than it was back during Mussolini and Adolf Hitler in the 1930s and 40s. And ironically, I would suggest that most people that use the word don't even really know what it means. Historically, fascism was on the left. I mean, it is not an accident that Hitler called himself a national socialist. It's not an accident that Mussolini was a Marxist. Uh, actually, an associate of Lenin, when Mussolini founded the first fascist party, he got a telegram of congratulations from Lenin. Uh, in the movie, Death of a Nation, I put up the Nazi a 25-point platform that the Nazis campaigned on. Uh, and, you know, there it is, state control of the banks, state control of education, state control of health care, state control of housing. You know, it becomes really obvious as you look down this list that there's nothing here that resembles conservatism. In fact, this is really an agenda that was, that would be seconded by uh, an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. 
Is this almost akin, uh, not to overcapitalize on the Nazi comparison, but is almost akin to the deft touch that somebody like Goebbels had on on propaganda and on villainizing the so-called opposition to such a point where eventually, even even back in the 1930s, people that were good, kind, church-going Germans eventually fell under the spell because there, there was this constant barrage of 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 victimization and and uh, that 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 sense of pulling every dirty trick out of the book possible in an effort to try and characterize or demonize uh, the opposition in such a fashion that eventually everybody buys into it. Are we seeing a form of that happen today? We're seeing a form of it. Now, we're clearly not seeing World War II or the Holocaust. But of course. What we are seeing is, I would say, a whiff of what you would call early fascism. This, was, this would be Mussolini in the 20s or Hitler in the 30s. When we were shooting this movie, I was in Nuremberg and in Munich, and I began to think about why the Nazis, you know, ordinary Germans would fly the swastika flag on their balcony, or they would do the Heil Hitler salute, and I thought to myself, why do that? Hitler's not around. What, what makes you do the Heil? What does it mean for you to do Heil Hitler? And then it occurred to me what it means is that you're actually signaling your humble conformity to the doctrine of the Nazi state. You're saying, I am not a disobedient person. Uh, I can be whipped into line. I will do what the state tells me to do. Now, in America, we call that political correctness. But notice how it's being enforced now across our society. You write a memo that they don't like at Google, and they fire you. Uh, you. You go against the ideology of the studio bosses, and they'll make sure you never work again in Hollywood. You're a young academic, they'll drive you out of the university without tenure. So there's this effort they really not, not only to, you know, to wreck people's lives, get them fired, uh, get them, you know, turned into, as I say, I said earlier, a digital non-person. I mean, gee, you'd have to go back to George Orwell to find this kind of nonsense going on. And, of course, ironically, and you and I have talked about this in the past, it's also demonstrative that the the one party that beats the drum of tolerance so repeatedly demonstrates itself to be oftentimes the least tolerant in the room. If you've just joined us, our conversation today with New York Times bestselling author, and filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. Mentioned, by the way, that Dinesh is coming to the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, he is going to be speaking on October the 13th. And if you'd like to get more information and order tickets, you can do so at independent-thinkers.org. That's independent-thinkers.org. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation, a look at Dinesh D'Souza's latest film, Death of a Nation. An eye-opener, to be sure, and perhaps a clarion call, if not an outright warning to this present generation. Our time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. Let's get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with filmmaker, New York Times bestselling author Dinesh D'Souza. By the way, I'll mention that uh, Dinesh's latest film, Death of a Nation, is showing now in theaters across the country. There's also a uh, companion book by the same name. Dinesh is going to be in the Bay Area, uh, coming to Fremont on October the 13th. You can get details online at independent-thinkers.org. Dinesh, certainly in the 20th century, 
two of the most respected print journalists were Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Uh, although I have to wonder now, in some of the reports uh, coming out of Washington, D.C. today, if uh, Bob Woodward is uh, looking more like a good candidate to be writing for The Globe or, uh, I don't know, uh, National Enquirer. A number of people have come out that have denounced his latest book, um, Fear, Trump in the White House. In fact, I, I caught just before our conversation today, Newt Gingrich, who's been a frequent guest on this program down through the years, outright saying that the book is nothing but a, a collection of lies. Why is it, you know, back in the day, it wouldn't be unusual for kind of a tell-all or at least a tell-some book after a president has left the White House, but for this to take place with a seated president, both on the heels of some of the revelations or claims, at least by Amorosa Newman, as well as Michael Wolff, what's going on here? Well, if you remember, going back to the 80s, there was a sort of breed of journalists. I would, I think if there was a woman named Kitty Kelly, if I remember correctly. Oh, yes. And this would be sort of, you could call it the kind of seamy, gossipy underside of politics and she would get it from somebody who heard it from somebody else that Nancy Reagan said this about Merv Griffin and that about President Reagan. And it was all hearsay, and it was all very salacious. And, of course, it, it sold well because it, it appealed to a certain kind of low appetite. But that was considered completely different from, say, a Bob Woodward who was investigating, you know, who did who authorized the Watergate break-in and was, did President Nixon have knowledge of it and what about his top aides and so on. Well, Apparently, Woodward has gotten too lazy to do that kind of reporting because he hasn't done that in decades. So apparently what he does now is hire an army of, of people who ultimately do the Kitty Kelly thing. Uh, so-and-so who said this to so-and-so who said this to so-and-so. And then the primary person who was supposed to get it comes on and goes, I never said that, you know. And so what happens is you basically get nothing but a kind of salacious gossip that doesn't even seem to be rooted in anything, if it's even true at all. Well, how would anybody expect a person who is currently an employee of the White House to come out and confirm, even if they did make such a statement, that they're going to give acknowledgement of that. Moreover, I think you're right. It's almost as if uh, a respected journalist, at least once respected journalist, has kind of devolved into competing with the likes of Hedda Hooper and, and Luella Parsons. Well, I think what Woodward is really doing is he's kind of thinking this way. Uh, what would a progressive who hates Trump expect the people around Trump to say about Trump? So if you, if you take all the leftist tropes about Trump, He's a racist, he's a buffoon, he doesn't know what's going on. Now, all of that is extremely difficult to square with what's been going on in the world. Trump is actually incredibly agile. He got the Gorsuch nomination through beautifully. He's passed tax reform. He's, he's transformed the court. He's doing very well on the trade negotiations. He's created an opening to North Korea no one thought possible. So it's very difficult to square this with Trump being the idiot that the left has portrayed him to be. Uh, and uh, therefore, what Woodward is doing is conforming the kind of worst prejudices on the left by supplying, if you will, all these so-called people around Trump saying the things that the left wishes they would say. Well, there also appears to be an extreme degree of intellectual dishonesty here, a, a disconnect where many of these on the far left seem to be cheering 
for President Trump's total, utter, complete failure, yet while in the White House, not recognizing that the president's failure could also likely mean a great deal of failure for the entire country. I mean, who would wish that upon themselves? And yet we see the left doing that. Yeah, I don't have a moment's doubt that they would wish that, because their hope is that that the country takes a couple of hits. I mean, Bill Maher actually said this. He goes, I wish the economy goes into a major nosedive because that will hurt the Republicans in the midterm election. Certainly that may prevent Trump from being reelected, And then we get to rebuild from that there on. So the, the Democrats are in a position where it, it, is, it is mortal war between them and Trump. And part of it is that they're dug in. You know, have they been, have they flattered Trump? Trump is a bit of a, you know, has a Himalayan eagle, as we all know. And have the Democrats treated him in a kinder, gentler way? I think that he would actually be willing to meet them halfway, but they can't do it because they demonize him to such a degree that their own base won't allow them to do that now. Well, and the old adage, my father used to stay, say this all the time, you know, you poke sticks in the cage of the lion, don't, don't be surprised when you get bit. Absolutely, and Trump has shown, I mean, you know, the typical Republican, is, let's just say you have a you know, woman like Omarosa blasting you, the typical Republican like McCain or Romney would go under his desk and wait for Omarosa to leave. Uh, but not Trump, as you know, he's emotionally incapable of not striking back. So if you strike out again, he's going to be kicking you in the chest. Take us deep into the film for a moment, if you would. I, I'm, I'm struck by the notion, if you if you look at historically at great nations, great societies, uh, whether you talk about the, the Roman Empire, the, the Greek Empire, uh, certainly even perhaps in more recent history, the, the former Soviet Union, in each and every case, they collapsed not because they lost battle with some outside major foe that rode in on the proverbial the Trojan horse and destroyed them, but rather they collapsed, they descended integrated from within. Are we seeing part of that now? I'm wondering, as you suggest from the title, Death of a Nation? Well, some of of those empires, like the Romans, you know, we invaded from the outside, but but by that time they had gotten so rotted from within that they could easily be defeated by an external foe. Sure. I mean, the barbarians who invaded Rome could never have defeated the Roman legions when the Roman legions were really strong that the Roman legions have gotten weaker. Now, when I use the term death of a nation, what I mean is not that America is going to go away like that. Uh, I don't expect America to be overrun by a foreign army. I don't expect the American people or their land to disappear. What I am saying is that if a country loses its soul, if it loses what makes it distinctive, if it loses its founding principles, if it becomes unrecognizable to the people who grew up here and have come to know and love America, then even though, in a sense, America is still here, the real America is gone. So we're watching perhaps death by degrees. Is this almost, to some respects, the proverbial frog in the kettle kind of experience? Well, I think it's, it, with, we see signs that a major party, in this case the progress of the Democratic Party, is willing to embrace forms of lawlessness, not just Antifa roaming the cities and roaming the campuses, but the lawlessness of illegal immigration. I mean, I'm a legal immigrant and a non-white legal immigrant, and I think illegal immigration is not only an insult to native-born Americans, it's an insult to legal immigrants. I know lots of guys in Bombay who would love to come to America. They've got to stand in a long line. They can't jump across the fence or swim across the Rio Grande. So it's, it's, it's really bad when you have a system uh, that takes in a generous amount of legal immigrants every year. By the way, most of them non-white immigrants. Trump has never said he wants America to have take only white immigrants. 
that Trump is not drawing a racial line. He's drawing a line between the legal and the illegal immigrant. But this desire to sort of open the borders and, and, and you know, flood America, if you will, with illegals just for political gain, this is what we've been reduced to as a country. Where do you see things headed? And I know that's an unfair question, but you have a unique perspective on all of this. Clearly, if we remain down this track, it's going to be a disaster. It, your, your book will end up becoming, uh, you know, history written in advance. Uh, is there any way to stop this from happening? The way to stop it from happening is ultimately for uh, the Republican Party to toughen its spine. The Republican Party has always been the party of nice guys the party of almost invertebrates. And by the way, it was a little like that under Lincoln. When Lincoln was first elected, the, the rhinos, you may say, of 1860 came rushing to Lincoln and told him, you've got you to forget about the Republican platform we just campaigned on because there's trouble brewing ahead. You've got to now meet the Democrats halfway. And Lincoln said, no. Lincoln said, wait a minute. We just had a Democratic election. We put this before the American people. They've given us an electoral majority, a mandate. Our job is now to carry it out. And so I'd like to see Trump with his kind of, you may almost say, his sort of natural toughness. Uh, I'd like to see the Republican Party learn from that and recognize that we're fighting both a political war and a culture war. And if the Republicans fight effectively, then we will avert the death of a nation. Do we also have to get serious about things like the deficit and the economics of it all? I mean, I, I realize that there's a great sense of celebration uh, post-tax reduction. Uh, certainly good to put America on even footing with other nations in terms of our corporate tax rate. But i got to tell you, I look at that 20 heading toward $21 billion, a trillion dollar deficit, and I think to myself, how sustainable can this be? Well, it's very bad. I mean, it, it, you have a deficit, I mean, you have a national debt that now equals, in, you know, the annual um, uh, GNP uh, of 16 or $17 trillion, and so we have, a, we have a national debt that's gone beyond that. So there's going to be an, a, a very important need to scale that down. Now, you can do that through a combination of, of governmental prudence, I realize a tall order, and then on the other hand, a, a healthy growth rate. And Trump has been, been pretty successful in getting this economy to start picking up a steam uh, through animal, the animal spirits of capitalism. But if you can combine that, that growth rate with, with, uh, with prudence at the fiscal level, we would see the deficit begin to take a big dip. Tall order in many respects, and certainly uh, it's time for all of us to wake up. And as suggested by the new film, America is indeed on a collision course, potentially with destruction. And so it's uh, it's time now to uh, sort of buck up, as the old saying goes. What was the old phrase? Wake up and smell the coffee, grow a spine, and begin to respond. At least we do experience and witness for ourselves death of a nation. It is the title of this new film, building on the success of many of his books and available at theaters across the San Francisco Bay Area. More information available online at deathofanationmovie.com. That's deathofanationmovie.com. And once again, our thanks to best-selling author, one of America's most influential conservative thinkers of our day, Dinesh D'Souza, for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Don't forget, by the way, Dinesh is going to be in town again on October the 13th, speaking in Fremont. You can get information, order tickets online at independent-thinkers.org. All right, let's see what kind of independent thinking is going on in the KFAX Traffic Center. Hmm, this, is what, this is what lingers in the minds of all of us. 
Yeah, that's what I kind of thought. Train wreck, or at least a car wreck. All right. Hopefully that one there is not affecting you. Let's see. Everybody looked up in their rear mirrors when you did that. You know that. Let's get a look at traffic right now with Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking a moment ago with best-selling author Dinesh D'Souza about uh, many of the issues that ail America today. And, and the fact that to several degrees, it seems as if instead of progressing, we're regressing. Um, territory and advancements that have been made historically in, in areas of um, economic advancements for the underprivileged, race relations. Uh, at one time, we lauded and said, you know, gee, it looks like we finally got in Iraq together as a nation and as a culture. And yet, sadly, today, there is a growing body of evidence to suggest just the opposite, that instead of, re- uh, of growing and maturing, we're regressing. All right, what to do? Well, coming up on Saturday, September the 15th, that's a week from this Saturday, there's going to be a special event hosted by Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Jose, titled A Biblical Response to Racial Injustice. Joining me now is the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Jose, Pastor Jason Reynolds. Pastor Reynolds, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, certainly not only a timely topic, but one that I think uniquely, if not almost exclusively, uh, needs to sit before the church, because after all, when it comes to matters of of justice, uh, be it spiritual justice um, and uh, social justice, this has largely been... Um, responsibility of the church. We've had the best success at it, hearkening back to the lead role that the church played in the 1950s and 60s addressing this very issue that led to advancements like uh, the vote for African Americans, the historic 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, and many of these other mile markers, so to speak, that have tracked progress. And then, as I suggest, recent years, it seems as if uh, the body of evidence is growing to suggest that instead of continuing to advance, we're starting to retreat. So now the church taking up this mantle. I know that you've been involved to many degrees in this. You're a member of the Community Advisory Board to the Chief of Police of San Jose, who, by the way, will be a participant in your upcoming uh, event on Saturday, the September 15th. What made you decide to actually put on a day-long seminar about this? Well, uh, it really was the truth of a, of a journey that kind of got us here. Uh, myself and uh, Dr. Stewart who is the Director of of Missions for the Great Commission Association of Southern Baptist Churches, had had a conversation back in 2016 about just where we were um, as we recognized racial tensions were changing. There were a number of things in our national discussion, and really it felt like an elephant in the room. And, you know, I posed this question, hey, what are our sister churches saying? Uh, There are many people of African-American descent, of Latino descent, who are part of the body of Christ. And, you know, we really feel like there's been an appalling silence, and we don't always know what to make of that. And so that journey kind of led us to a number of different things, our association uh, making a statement about it. But we recognize that statements mean one thing, but actions mean so much more. And so over that two years, we kind of really developed into saying, hey, if we can give people, number one, information about the real issues, if we can have people in our area speak to kind of what we're dealing with, but couch this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is a biblical response 
then we think we have the best chance of, of kind of moving forward, seeing the body of Jesus Christ again be at the epicenter of change in our country. Well, and therein lies the real key, doesn't it? Because, you know, as much as there's been a lot of debates and symposiums and, and meetings and so forth and, and TED Talks and all of it, uh, you're, you're really talking about a heart problem here, aren't yes. you? I mean, at the end of the day, if you look at an individual who engages in in, 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 in racially offensive language or behavior, I, I'm going to be inclined, you know, g- give me a racist and I'll show you somebody that probably doesn't have a relationship with God. So at the end of the day, this really comes down to, as I suggested in my opening remarks, a responsibility for the church, because who better to change hearts than Jesus? I, I, I think you're, you're, you're totally accurate. And, you know, one of the other things that we recognize is not only is it the hearts of those who have already been changed, but even the difficulty of just having the conversation. I mean, nobody wants to be labeled a racist. Nobody wants to be thought of in that way, at least not uh, many people that are connected with the body. But there's a shame with talking about it. There's a, there's a shame with recognizing that uh, there are systems in place or there are people that are kind of oppressed. And how do we respond? And how do we do it biblically? What do we believe that Jesus would say? What can we gain from the Bible to help us? Because in many social justice circles, that's the thing that I feel is neglected. It is that let's take the Bible out and let's try to give social services to the people. And there's a benefit there, but it's not going to be ultimate. Uh, The ultimate benefit comes when we are able to apply the gospel to the human condition and see transformation. Again, this is going to be taking place on Saturday, September the 15th from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. Tell us a bit about some of the, I mentioned, of course, about Chief of Police um, going to participate from San Jose, but in, in addition to uh, Chief Garcia, who else will be there? Yes, yeah, so we have a great lineup. We have um, Dr. Hilaria Barra from uh, Alam Rock School District, who is the superintendent, uh, to be able to speak to the issues even playing in education as it relates uh, to some of these racial injustices. Brendan Woods, a public defender from Alameda County, uh, who also will be talking about it within the criminal justice system. And then we also have uh, pastors from kind of the Bay Area. Dr. Michael Stewart, who I mentioned earlier, will be speaking. I will be speaking. Felipe Santos, uh, Santos from uh, Echo Church will be there. And then we also have the Ang campaign. And what I really love about the Ann campaign is they really kind of try to marry uh, this idea of being socially aware, socially engaged, but being biblically responsible, right? And, and how do we bring both of those to the table and come up with ways that we can do this and change communities that we live in? Uh, if folks want to get more information, where can they go? So uh, we have a website. It is response-to-racial-injustice.org. Again, that's response-to-racial-injustice.org. It has the full lineup there. You can register right from that site. You can click on the button that says register. It's a $35 registration fee, but that also includes lunch and the full day of speakers and even time for us to talk uh, back and forth. Uh, I think it's going to be a great day. God is already blessing so many things, and I think it will be great for everybody to be there. And again, this day-long symposium entitled The Biblical Response to Racial Injustice will be held on Saturday, September. September the 15th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Jose. And as Pastor Reynolds mentioned, uh, the website, response to racial injustice.org, and put a dash in between each word. So response dash to dash racial dash injustice.org. And our thanks to Senior Pastor Jason Reynolds, Senior Pastor from Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Jose for that update. Six o'clock from KFAX. Speaking of updates, we'll do one on news. But first, let's get a look at traffic, the latest with Michael Bennett. Michael?
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.